0: Share some fun facts and
1: some that aren't so
0: fun. Talk about food history and how food connects and
1: defines us. So, if you've ever eaten, prepared, or shared food, then this podcast probably has something for you.
0: Hi, Lay. Hey, Kim. How are you doing? I am doing great. I think we've gotten through most of our Thanksgiving leftovers,
1: so that feels good. Congratulations. We're still fighting the good fight in our house. <laughs> you did make a little more than I did. I, I made so much food. <laughs> I have some fun updates to give you, though, about mahogany. Are you oh, ready Oh, I'm for this? excited. Hey. For the folks at home, mahogany is a drink that came up during our episode on pies. When we were talking about treacle tart, I discovered that there was a treacle drink famous in Cornwall amongst fishermen with one part of treacle to two parts of gin called the mahogany. And since we've aired that episode, one of our favorite and intrepid listeners, Holly Ports of Play Kitchen, decided that she was going to take on this recipe and see what happened. Tune in to our social media to see her results. But I also took it upon myself to give mahogany a shot, and this is what happened. So, as I've said, the recipe typically calls for one part of treacle or molasses or golden syrup, as we kind of know them in the United States, to two parts of gin. Thinking that this might be a warm drink, because I cannot for the life of me imagine mixing golden syrup with any cold liquid. So, this morning, I got out my trusty golden syrup that I keep in the house, and I created two versions. I did one that was gin based with a real basic generic gin. And then I did a second one with rum. So the resulting drink is incredibly sweet. I cannot imagine somebody kicking back with a big old mug of mahogany. I, they would be comatose by the end of it. The sugar in the golden syrup really heightens the alcohol. It does kind of mask the flavors of whatever alcohol you're using, but you're left with the alcohol taste itself. And I'm kind of a weird drinker anyway, so I always feel like everything tastes like alcohol to me. It's it's definitely not something that I could imagine being a daily cocktail. I could imagine it being something warming after a day working out on the sales or pulling in nets. I think it would be fabulous as a topper for vanilla ice cream. But as a drink, not so much. And that's probably why it, it's not such a common thing today. Except maybe in Cornwall. I still need a Cornish fisherman to please let me know if mahogany is still your thing. I, I, I'm, I'm really still very curious about this. But the long and the short of it is, it is a drinkable drink. It's a very sweet drinkable drink. But proceed with caution. <laughs> Seriously, it's it's... Crazy sweet.
0: But I would imagine that that sweetness, like you said, with them coming off of the waters, that that's probably one of those drinks that would provide a little bit of warmth.
1: Also, some sustenance, probably some much needed calories. Definitely mentioning calories. I can can fully imagine having that windswept kind of feeling, you know, just kind of coming into quarters after a long day, being outside, being exposed to the wind and the rain. And I don't know why there's rain in my imagination, but there is the wind and the swells and you've got fish slapping you in the face. And, you know, all you want after a long day is just chill. I could imagine it being, you know, a good drink. I don't know what I thought that they would be drinking. I guess I never gave much thought before to what fishermen and folks drink on vessels until today. I think we have some answers to those questions.
0: We do have some answers to some of those questions. Speaking of water and alcohol and sailing and ships, we should talk about the word grog. Oh, yes, please. So to understand the word grog, we have to talk about the British Navy and daily rations. To stock food for a sea voyage is it's pretty tricky business. And even today, it's pretty tricky business. But when you don't have the modern amenities of the 21st century, it's compounded a little bit. So it was really important when they were going off on expeditions, that they had rations that were fairly shelf stable. And some of those rations between the 15th and 18th centuries, um, a daily ration, and this is only, we're not talking about food right now, we're talking about Liquids. But daily rations for sailors in the British Navy were one gallon of a combination of weak beer, one to 3% ABV, alcohol by volume, mm. brandy, and water. There were a lot of problems that arose with each one of these. The beer would go sour, the water would go stale, and algae would start mm, to bloom in it. Algae, mm, <laughs> algae water. And brandy supplies were unpredictable because the supply was often interrupted by wars that were going on during those times. so true. So, enter Vice Admiral William Penn, who happened to conquer Jamaica in 1655. And at the time, Jamaica's prominent resource was rum. So... Penn decided that he would restock the beer and the water for his sailors with rum, and slowly brandy and beer and water were replaced by rum, and then it was incorporated, rum specifically, was incorporated into the regulations and instructions relating to His Majesty's service at sea. Essentially, the regulations stated that one undiluted half pint of rum was equal to a gallon of beer. Okay, now remember this. The beer was 1 to 3% ABV, right? Right. Or alcohol by volume. Right. And as a comparison, Coors Light is 4.2.
1: Okay. So, uh, so a fairly weakish beer. Yes. Is that a small beer? Is that what a small beer would be? I don't know. Yeah, we're going to have to look that one up. Oh, sorry. Digressed. Please <laughs> please continue. So, low a, a gallon of a fairly low Alcohol, beer, being traded for rum, for rum, Mm,
0: which is not one to three percent ABV. Right now, we have to move on to Vice Admiral Edward Vernon, whose nickname was Old Grog, because his preference in cloaks was made out of grogram, which was, and probably still is, a coarse, (laughs) loosely woven cloth made of a blend of silk and mohair or silk and wool which was much less
1: expensive than the fine woven
0: silk or wool fabrics.
1: And I bet that'd be pretty nice at sea cuz your wool's going to get soaked with sea air and sea salt and mm-hmm. your silk would get ruined. So please continue. <laughs> I think it was pretty, pretty nice on the sea but also
0: on his pocketbook.
1: Yeah, that's that that too. <laughs> right? We
0: will also have a picture of Vice Admiral Vernon on the website. So you can see his
1: dapper Sweet. grogum cloak. So old grog mm-hmm. and grog. I'm, I'm assuming that there's a there correlation. Here. Here. Oh, there is stuff. a link here. Yes.
0: So he was super highly respected by his sailors because he was always fighting for better conditions for the sailors, but he had a problem and he had, it was a pretty big problem. Remember the ABV of the beer? Mm-hmm. One, two, three mm-hmm. percent. Well, rum is typically about 40%. So the vice-admiral's officers (laughs) were having a lot of problems dealing with drunkenness and the disciplinary actions that went along with that. So Old Grog decided that he would issue a captain's order. It was captain's order number 349, and it was issued (laughs) August 21st of 1740. Oh. And it stated that rum provisions must be mixed with water. And then he stated further that any crew members that are good husbandmen may, from the saving of their salt provision and bread, purchase sugar and limes to make it palatable to them. Oh. So what they would do, they would save their rations of salt and bread and they would trade it for the sugar and the lime and they would mix it in the rum Mm. and the modification of this provision was nicknamed grog after old grog and there's some super interesting facts around this the dilution of the rum was required to take place on the deck in front of a lieutenant of the watch and then the purser would call up spirits so that they all those sailors would come up onto the deck and the rations would be doled out. And this practice did not end until July 31st, 1970. What? So from 1740 through 1970, the up-spirit
1: rations were in effect. That's crazy. Isn't that but crazy? But super cool. Right? One of the things that I've read about Grog is that extra rum rations were also provided for special celebrations. You know, folks could give a toast for Trafalgar Day, and that sailors might actually share their ration with the cook or with somebody celebrating a birthday. So there were cases where you could perhaps over-imbibe. Sailors found guilty of drunkenness aboard ship were sometimes punished with six-water grog, which is rum diluted with water at a six-to-one ratio. So basically you have... Rum scented water at that point. And then in Australia, grog commonly used to describe any cut rate diluted rum. And as that was the only rum available to the poor and working class, it actually eventually just became the the slang term for alcohol. So a a grog Mm -hmm. shop was a place where you would just go get your fill of whatever there was to drink. British grog also influenced the American Continental Navy, who followed suit with the grog ration tradition except that U.S. Secretary of the Navy Robert Smith experimented by substituting rye whiskey for imported rum, as it was cheaper and easier to come by, and that proved to be a hit with American sailors. And so this American variation continued until September 1862, so not quite as long as the British Navy. However, in contrast with the military Navy, American merchant ships were incentivized to be dry, So no alcohol on board. And there are accounts of insurance underwriters offering a return of up to 10% on the insurance premium if there were no spirits aboard during the voyage. So Wow. Yeah. That's very interesting
0: that on one hand, we have the Navy, the (laughs) (laughs) government-supported group of sailors that... I mean, that's part of their daily ration. And
1: then the merchant sailors are like, yeah, not so much for you guys. Yep. So there's clearly this acknowledgement about the dangers of alcohol. And yet our naval military with their ammunition and <laughs> and their kind of responsibility for protection and, you know, the possible warfare. And maybe it was because of that component that was a dangerous mm. profession. Mm-hmm. More so than a Merchant Marine, sorry Merchant Marines. I know you. I know you guys are hardcore, but yeah, maybe it was maybe it was that it was a sort of a if you're willing to put your life on the line, we're going to give you some rum for it. So, I have a fun fact for you. <laughs> okay, are you excited? I am. Okay. I can't wait to hear it. <laughs> it's 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 bad, but it's not that bad. So I have heard tell that if you breach formal etiquette. At a dining-in ceremony for the U.S. Navy, U.S. Army, U.S. Marine Corps, or U.S. Air Force, that you must drink from the grog in front of the entire assembly. And this is a blend of alcoholic drinks with no rhyme, no reason, mixed in a toilet bowl.
0: Yeah. (laughs) You don't drink from the toilet bowl, though, right? I mean, they dish it into something
1: or scoop it, ladle it into something. I'm not sure. I mean, either way, it's going to be I mean, the the image is is meant to be kind (laughs) of gross. So whether you're whether it's a punch cup or whether you're just lifting, I I mean, I'm not I'm not 100 percent sure on that one. So so it is I mean, it is kind of fun to see what the recipes are for for this sort of traditional grog. I have notes that the Royal Navy's grog recipe, it constitutes rum, water, lemon juice, and cinnamon. There's a Caribbean recipe variation that is water, light rum, grapefruit juice, orange juice, pineapple juice, cinnamon, and honey. But the best thing that I found is a pirate version of grog. And I, by, by pirate, I mean like a hoi pirate version called Bumbo. And this is traditionally a blend of rum, water, sugar, nutmeg, or cinnamon. Modern versions of Bumbo, you know how cocktails recipes kind of evolve and grow. Modern versions are dark rum, citrus juice, grenadine, and nutmeg, which I think sounds mm. delicious. So... Yesterday, we went to our local distiller,
0: and I had a fog cutter, which is their white rum, lime juice, orgay, and nutmeg, and it was delicious. That sounds amazing. It was so good. So good. So the bumbo,
1: bumbo, bumbo? Bumbo, B-U-M-B-O. Bumbo.
0: Yeah, so the bumbo Mm. reminded me of my fog cutter, which was really Mm. delicious. Sounds
1: fabulous. Yeah. Yeah, it's really interesting. Rum's very much a naval drink and, and uh, maritime, watery. I mean, like, obviously, you know, you I think, think fog cutter, you think of, you know, a cutter, which is a ship. Yes. But like a lighthouse and a foggy, moody shore and sitting in the lighthouse keeper quarters nursing your fog cutter. So I can yeah. imagine that. Nice fire going. Yeah. Maybe some chowda. For sure. For sure the chowda. Yeah. I mean there are a lot of drinks with not with a lot of drinks with nogs aren't there? There are. <laughs> there are a lot of drinks with rum that are very near and dear to
0: us. There are. And speaking of rum-based drinks, we should move on to nogs. Yes, please. Let's talk All about right. nog. <laughs> so the uh, origins of nog, the word nog itself are a little bit more difficult to trace than grog. Grog was pretty straightforward nogs there's several thoughts of where it actually came from before it was a word for head noggin was actually a word to mean a small mug which was generally made out of wood or a small drink of spirits so it might have been shortened to mean a type of spirited drink the other theory is that it's related to the scottish word nug or nugged ale, which is an ale that is warmed with a hot poker. Oh. So they heat this poker in the fire and then stick it into the ale. So could be, you know, either one of those or a combination of those two. The drink that we know as eggnog likely had its origins in the 13th century with a drink called posset, which was a warmed spice ale that had eggs mixed into it. But here's where history gets kind of interesting, and it kind of turns the whole hierarchy of food and drinking on its head. So eggnog was a drink that was intended for the rich. Because the ingredients were scarce in Europe. Mm -hmm. It was eggs and cream and milk and spices. Mm -hmm. But when the Europeans moved to North America, eggs, milk, cream, and rum, remember the rum was pretty readily available in the States because of Mm -hmm. Vice Admiral William Penn. And it also was not taxed as high as brandy or wine. So the taxes on rum were far less than either of those two ingredients. So back to the eggs and the creams and the milk and the rum, they were a lot more available here in the States or in North America or in the colonies at that point, because everybody had chickens and they had Mm -hmm. cows. And again, the rum was a lot more readily available to them. So this drink that was intended for the rich and famous became a drink that could be enjoyed by common people. And This colonial drink became a holiday tradition for many American families. As a matter of fact, Huffington Post reported that 135 million pounds of eggnog is consumed every year. Wow. And this was back in 2012, I think, when this was reported. Wow. Yeah. Even George Washington had a favorite eggnog recipe that was served at Mount Vernon during the holidays. I love this recipe. It is one quart of cream, one quart of milk, one dozen tablespoons of sugar, one pint of brandy, a half a pint of rye whiskey, a half a pint of Jamaican rum, and a quart of a pint of sherry. Mix the liquor first, then separate the yolks and the whites from 12 eggs. Add the sugar to the beaten yolks and mix well. Add milk and cream, slowly beating. Beat whites of eggs until stiff and fold slowly into the mixture. Let set in a cool place for several days taste frequently (laughs) taste frequently (laughs) taste frequently that that would
1: definitely be happening in my house
0: exactly i did find several older eggnog recipes in this one it said let sit in a cool place for several days i thought that part was really interesting i thought well i i would have just i would have drank it but um (laughs) but most of these recipes told you to let them sit for several days. And in one case, one of the recipes said five days is the best. So you have to let it, I guess, meld and marry and do its thing. Right. Yeah. Uh Imbue. 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 It's... Yeah.
1: Infuse. Really? Infuse
0: all those flavors? No. I don't
1: know. No. I don't... Yeah. Well, at any rate, make it basically become delicious.
0: Exactly. We also have... Another president who has a history with eggnog. So on December 24th in 1826, the cadets from West Point rioted after imbibing on bootlegged eggnog. <laughs> yes, they got very drunk and rioted. And that another gave riot. the riot. Yep. Another riot. We Food and riots are going together in these podcasts. I tell you, you disrupt their food and they get mad. <laughs> Well, and that was part of it is that they were upset that they were not allowed to have alcohol on premise. So they bootlegged the whiskey in, made the eggnog, drank for a couple (laughs) of days, and then rioted. And the riot was given the name of Eggnog Riot or Grog Mutiny. The riot itself resulted in 70 cadets being implicated and 20 of them being court-martialed.
1: Oh, my goodness. And
0: Jefferson Davis happened to be among the participants, but he was not
1: court-martialed. That naughty, naughty boy. (laughs) Wow. Yeah, Eggnog. Eggnog has a pretty rich history here in the States. When we talk about food mutinies and rebellions, we are, of course, referring to the Butter Riot that we talked about in the Butter episode. So if you're curious about the life of crime that popped up around Butter, tune in to that episode for more information. Well, another another drink that I associate with the holidays is wassail or a hot mold punch or cider, and this is a very traditional recipe, and this dates back super far, meant to ensure a good cider apple harvest the following year, as well as just to sort of welcome the end of end of the year. So, early versions of wassail, which literally means to be hail, were made of warmed mead or honey wine. Uh, in which roasted crab apples were dropped, and that actually created a drink called lamb's wool. Lamb's wool being a drink that you would drink while wassailing, although the drink itself also became known as wassail. It's a little confusing. But lamb's wool eventually really evolved to become a mulled cider made with sugar, cinnamon, ginger, nutmeg, topped with slices of toast used to sop up the drink and then eat the toast, and also drunk from a large communal bowl or a wassail bowl or a loving cup, which comes up in Shakespeare literature, actually. Modern recipes for wassail often begin with a base of wine, fruit juice, or malt ale, sometimes with a brandy or sherry added, so very much like our eggnog recipe. And then apples, oranges, sometimes added to the mix, and sometimes beaten eggs were tempered into it as well. Again, very much like our eggnog. So... I love Loving Cups. Ever since I first read about one in some assigned school reading, I thought that they were pretty cool. Basically, Loving Cups are cups with two handles meant to be held and to drink from kind of communally. One person holds one side, the other person holds the other. They're kind of passed around. Early Vossail bowls were made of wood, pottery, tin, had handles for shared drinking, highly decorated lids. And this description was noted in a traditional carol from Gloucestershire. Which is, Vasail, Vasail, all over the town. Our toast, it is white, our ale, it is brown. Our bowl is made of the white maple tree. With a wassling bowl, we'll drink unto thee. I love how toasts have been associated with alcohol. Right? It's an interesting <laughs> thing. You don't usually toast like Coca Cola, no, or no. Water. I have a really old copy of Emily Post's Etiquette from 1945. Speaking of toasting and alcohol, was that. Her note on weddings, specifically wedding receptions, specifically wedding receptions in a wartime era, was that a wedding reception could really be anything, but it always had to have a cake for cutting, and it didn't have to be an elaborate cake. It could be a very simple cake, but also uh, something sparkling with which to toast. That was Emily Post's rules about wedding toasts. Right. Apparently, you could not make a wedding toast with anything but a bubbling wine or champagne. There are surviving examples of puzzle vassal bowls, and this one I think is super charming, with many spouts. So as you attempt to drink from one of the spouts, you're actually probably going to get drenched from another spout. (laughs) There's so much to say about vassaling that we're going to share on the As We Eat website. But for now, I think I'm going to go mix myself a glass of bumbo and, you know, daydream about sailing the open seas.
0: Mm, I think um, I'm going to head over to the distillery and have another fog cutter. But before
1: we imbibe, we should tell our listeners about what's coming up next week. Oh, I'm so glad you asked. Next week, we'll be exploring New Year's Eve and New Year's Day food traditions, where we do things like eat grapes, black-eyed peas, pork, honey, and noodles for luck and prosperity for the new year. But maybe not all together at the same time.
0: Yeah, that sounds a little indigestible.
1: It is. For more information about today's episode, check out our website at asweeat.com. Follow us on Instagram at asweeat and join our new As We Eat community on Facebook.
0: And so you don't miss an episode, subscribe wherever you listen to your favorite podcasts. It would make us super happy if you would share this with a friend and review it and rate it five stars, please.
1: And one more thing. We'll be publishing the, as we eat journal, a companion publication to the podcast. We'll take you behind the scenes, dig deeper into food lore and history, share recipes and amazing photos, and so much more. Make sure to sign up on the website for updates.
0: Oh, and one more thing. We also have a Patreon page where you can support us by becoming a patron. We've created an exclusive podcast for our patrons called Recipe Box Roulette. We think you're really going to love it.
1: You've been listening to As We Eat, a multimedia project recorded and produced by Leigh Olson and Kim Baker. Obviously.